So moving specifically to this year in uh, 22 and 23, we get to study the books of Job and James. And so I wanted to just talk about kind of an overview of Job. And when we start a book, any kind of book, we start with a, the envelope, I call it. Um, and actually, it was from Jen Wilkins. She's a Bible teacher. And I remember her saying, like, when you open a um, a mail, a letter in the mail, you go to the mailbox, you get this envelope. And what's the first thing that you look at? Who's it to? It would be my house because I've got adult kids running everywhere. By the way, I'm Terry Brady. <laughs> For those who don't know, and I have four children, which aren't really children anymore. They're 25, 22, 18, and 17. So I only have one at home right now. I have a grandbaby and another one on the way soon. Um, and so the kids are coming and going and seems like everybody keeps using my address, even though they don't live there. And they all keep eating my food, even though they don't live there. So uh, it's not unusual for me to get mail that I really need to check the name on it. So I have a whole mail catalog in my kitchen. This is yours. This is yours. Anyway, who's it to? And then the next one is who's it's from, right? And then when did this happen? When was it written or how old is this letter? And we might have a literary format. Like, is this a summons to go to court? Is it an invitation to a shower or a wedding? Or is it a letter from a friend? We don't know, but we kind of look at what the format is as soon as we open it. And then we can, and we finish reading it. It's no different when we're reading the letters from the Lord in the Bible. And so, for example, for the book of Job, we could say, who is the author? And if we went through and we read all of Job and we studied it hard and we looked for all the clues, we would figure out that we have no idea who the author is. <laughs> That's always frustrating to me because I really want to open this envelope. I want to study it the proper way. But after I did all of my own research, I researched through some commentaries and nobody knows who wrote it. <laughs> or they don't know when the events occurred. They don't know where Job lived. There's so much mystery behind all of this. All we know is that it happened. I only go this through this exercise with you because I think it's an important part of studying the Bible. For example, though, the commentaries kind of gave me this clue when I was reading Walbert and Zuck, and they said that it was likely during the patriarchal period that this occurred, that Job's stories occurred, because, and that when I say that, that's the fathers of faith. So that'd be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob-ish. Do you like that word, Jacob-ish? I'm good at making up words. I'm also good at using really simple words like stuff. So I'm just going to apologize up front. I like it. And I like these points as to why we think that it is patriarchal-ish. For example, Job lives to be about 100, 210 years old. And we know that the other patriarchs lived around that age. But later in time, they died much earlier. It's not the, the life expectancy anymore. So probably that would put it in that time period. His wealth in the in the book was recorded in terms of animals, and property and servants. I don't record my wealth that way anymore, but it was definitely recorded that way in the patriarchal periods. Um, we know the Hebrew tomb for silver from Job 42 verse 11 is only used two other times in the Bible, and both of them refer to Jacob. So if there's a kind of money that existed at that time that the Hebrew word would be that, then don't you think it might be in that same era? So you can see how these scholars out there put this information together and told us when approximately Job occurred. So the literary format, here's another one. I go through and I read the whole thing. I'm like, man, I can't wait to see what this is. Like, is it a baby shower invitation? No. Is it a letter? No. Is it narrative? Yes, there's some story to it, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle that kind of doesn't make sense. 
Let me explain. Once I read about it, I found out that in Hebrew, it's actually very poetic. So it begins with narrative. It ends with narrative. But in the middle, it's all poetry, a poem, a wonderful like prose in the middle. It doesn't look like poetry to you and me, like that poem I wrote last night in our little welcome letter. <laughs> it doesn't rhyme to us, but it has patterns like poems have patterns. Uh, for example, there's repetitive themes. When Job is speaking, for example, he goes through his disappointment in friends. Each time he goes through disappointment in friends, a declaration of God's greatness, disillusionment with God's uh, powers or ways, a despair with his life, often desiring to die, or a desire for vindication with God. Like he goes through those patterns each time he talks. And when we know it's a poem, we might look for those and think, oh, I see this. It's going over and over and over again, you know, next or same song, next verse kind of thing. So in addition to the themes being repeated, we see uh, repeated sections or pattern verses, kind of like a song or a poem. So the prose begins in chapter three with the first three speeches. Job talks in chapter three, and then Eliphaz his friend talks in four and five, and then Job talks to Eliphaz, and then Bildad talks, and then Job talks, and then Zophar talks, and then Job talks. So he has these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they go back and forth talking. Now, my husband said, we should know for sure. We should have recognized right away that this was some kind of poem or something, because nobody could ever talk that long and not be interrupted. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. That's about right. But ironically, or the way the poem is written, the second speeches are in the exact same order. So it goes Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, the same thing, right? So the friend speaks, Job speaks, the friend speaks, Job speaks, the friend speaks, Job speaks. And they do it. So that's in 15 to 21. And then they do it a third time in 22 to 30, the exact same thing. Friend, Job, friend, Job, friend, Job. And our fourth verse is a little bit different. Because this guy named Elihu comes in and we think it's going to be all oh, great. Okay, this is going to be better. And he's got a lot off too. By the time Elihu speaks, I was so confused. And so if you say you're not confused by then, I just not going to like you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> by then I'm thinking, what is right? And what is wrong? There's been so much stuff that I'm like, that's wrong, but that's right. These friends come in, they say they're there to console Job, but I don't see any consoling going on. I feel like they're reprimanding him almost the whole time. And they call themselves friends. It's just crazy. What's wrong? What's truth? And how do we know? When are we going to get to that truth? When God speaks, <laughs> which he does in chapters 38 and 39, God speaks. And then Job answers to God. Now, God, uh, God speaks for 38 and 39 and Job speaks for verse three to five of chapter 40, which made me laugh because I thought that's about as much as I could eke out at that point. And then in 40 and 41, God speaks again. And in 42, Job takes five verses and speaks back to God. Now we go back to narrative. Thank the Lord, because the epilogue, God condemns Job's friends for being wrong. Ladies, I know some of you in this room are going through some really tough times. And there's things that you're going through and there's things that you're going to relate to with Job and you're going to think, yeah, man, I feel like I'm being knocked down and here comes this friend and they're telling me bad stuff. And if you are unfamiliar with this whole book of Job and you just read Eliphaz, for example, you're going to be afraid 
that the Lord is judging you and sending illness and, and uh, suffering and everything to you because that's what Eliphaz says. And I would just encourage you, wait till the end of the book. We're not done yet. Don't just believe all these people, these friends of Job. I'm giving you a big spoiler ahead of time. Don't believe them all. A lot of them are lies. Don't rest in them. Let me tell you the simplified outline of Job. This is Terry Brady's commentary right here. (laughs) God and Satan talk in the beginning. Job loses everything. Job's three friends do an awful job consoling him while Job tells them so. Job's fourth friend comes and says it better, but not perfect. And then God corrects it all. Okay, we can go home now. (laughs) So now that we opened up the envelope, we talked about the literary side of things, and we gave you a little bit of the background. Let's jump into some of the detail. So I said that they start in the beginning with narrative, and something actually happened, and it was a conversation between God and Satan. In 1 verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, they're talking about Job, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan goes and takes all of Job's wealth, his servants and his animals, and all 10 of his children die, all from natural disasters, all things that God allowed Satan to do. But Satan wants more. He said, No, Job hasn't cursed you yet. I want Job to curse you. Give me skin for skin. So God says in chapter two, verse six, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Guys, why does God meet with Satan on this and agree to this plan? I don't know. Can you all practice this with me? We're going to go like this. Everybody stand up for a minute. I want you to practice this with me. Ready? Shoulders up. And shoulders down. Okay. It's called a shrug. I don't know. Okay. Shrug it off. I don't know. We're not going to know all the answers, but we are going to know the one who has all the answers. So moving on, go ahead and have a seat. He loses his wealth. His children die. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Just as an example, I wanted to list what his health is like, what Job's health is like in chapter three uh, to. Well, the whole book, let's just say this is from uh, Charles Swindoll puts this summary in his book. And he says that he's covered in boils. They're inflamed ulcerous sores, persistent itching, degenerative changes in his facial skin, disfiguration to the point that his friends didn't recognize him, loss of appetite, fears and depression, sores that burst open and scab and crack and ooze, worms. that form in the sores, difficulty breathing, darkening of his eyelids, foul breath, loss of weight, continual excruciating pain, high fever, chills, discoloration of skin, anxiety, and diarrhea. So much that Job says in chapter three, I regret my birth. He wishes he had never been born. He says he wishes he had gone from womb to tomb. And now he just wants to die. I can't wait to study this with you guys. <laughs> like, woo, this is going to be fun. What? I'll just say that some of these chapters don't end well. Chapter 17, look out. Like, what? We have to go home on this? But don't some of our days end that way as well? 
We don't know until the very end. I like that saying that says everything's going to be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. It's going to be a really good year. And I really hope you'll stick with it and stay with us and study. The man who had everything now has nothing. He's in the depth of sorrows and his friends who come to show sympathy and sympathy and comfort him have a lot of bad stuff to say. First, though, they sit in silence for seven days and they grieve with Job. So after they sit with silence for seven days, just grieving with him, they look like the smartest men in the world, don't they? They just were such good friends, but then they open their mouths and it gets so much worse. My father's favorite quote that he often said was Abraham Lincoln was, I'd rather remain silent and thought a fool than to open my mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) These, These men removed all doubt of their foolish thoughts when they opened their mouth. Ladies, Joe Bailey uh, is an author, and he had lost a toddler to a pool accident when the toddler got out of the house and went next door. He tells of friends who came to his house to console him after the toddler's death. He talks about them coming and asking how it happened, how the gate was open, who wasn't watching the child, all these questions that were just knives to him every day. He said, I was sitting torn in grief and someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope from beyond the grave. He talked constantly and said things that I knew, I already knew were true. I was totally unmoved, except that I wished he'd go away. And he finally did. But another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly, prayed simply, and then he left. I was so moved. I was so comforted. I hated to see him go. I remember a similar experience a few years ago when I was going through some really tough times. And I had emailed a friend and told her all that was going on. She was a close friend from growing up. And she just answered and sent me a song. And she said, just know I'm sitting here in the ashes with you. This is the song she sent. It's called Not Right Now by Jason Gray. You could see the smoke from a mile away, and trouble always draws a crowd. They want to tell me that it'll be okay, but that's not what I need right now. Not while my house is burning down. I know someday, I know somehow I'll be okay, but not right now. Not right now. Tell me if the hope that you know is true. Every feel everyone's ever feels like a lie, even from a friend. When their words are salt in an open wound and they just can't seem to understand that you haven't even stopped the bleeding yet. Don't tell me when I'm grieving that this happened for a reason. Maybe one day we'll talk about the dreams that had to die for new ones to come alive, but not right now. While I wait for the smoke to clear, you don't even have to speak. Just sit with me in the ashes here, and together we can pray for peace to the one acquainted with our grief. I would love to be that kind of friend. Certain things I wish we had learned we would learn from Job. Why in the world does God allow suffering to happen to good, blameless, righteous people? Why didn't Job just curse God and take his life like his wife told him to? Why does Satan get any allowances? If we act righteously and blamelessly, do we deserve blessings? How are we supposed to be good friends to someone who's hurting? I wish we could get those answers, and some we may. 
But here's your spec your second spoiler alert. We don't get all the answers. But I believe there's wisdom and faith in the unanswered. There's some underlying principles here I wanted to talk about. One is that bad theology never leads to good advice. Friends who are not biblical are not right. And we can't let their advice get into our heads. Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, they were legalistic liars who operated under unbiblical premises. Their premises most of the time was, you suffer, so you must have sinned to cause that suffering. But the real question for us in the room is, is our biblical knowledge up to par that we can be the right kind of biblical friend to somebody in need? Do we know what the right answers are? Do we know what's wrong with their answers? Ladies, I'm so proud of you for being here because I feel like we're seeking the right answers by being here, by being, by learning these biblical truths together. So to be a good friend, we could sit with them. We can pray with them. We can cry with them. We don't get turned off by distasteful sights, deformed faces, or bad breath. Speak, speak truth to them while the devil tells his lies. And silence can definitely be a gift. What did Jesus do? Jesus wept, right? He didn't throw the first stone, and Jesus pointed to his Father in heaven. Another principle is that lack of approval from some friends is not always a bad thing. Job says, I'm a joke to my friends. But our goal is not to be a pleaser of man, but to please God who tests our hearts. It tells us that in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Job knows this and says, you whitewash with lies, you worthless physicians, are you all? Oh, that you would keep silent and that would be your wisdom in Job chapter 13. I love that Job didn't just roll over and allow these lies to continue. He stood strong. Could we stand strong? Where am I? So you think that I'm going to ask you, where have your friends been liars to you? But I'm not. That's not an application that we can control. But my question is, where have I been an Aliphaz or a Zophar or a Bildad? Have I judged others instead of encouraging them? Did I ask how the fire started and missed the chance to sit and watch the smoke with my arm around someone? Where do I need to silence the critics and listen to the Lord instead? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, says, sometimes we need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. Paul David Tripp talks about horizontal relationships have to be the backseat to the vertical relationship with our Lord. That's a constant daily battle, isn't it? Friends and family come and go, but the Lord never leaves. So after the friends go through their entire poetic verse, we come to the dialogue again, but this time the dialogue turns to God and God says, Job, here is why you're suffering. Let me tell you. Nope, he doesn't. God says, Job, shame on you for acting like you're so miserable. It's not that big of a deal. Nope, doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, Job, let me fix all these problems. And then let's chat about what Satan, what I allowed Satan to do. Nope, he doesn't do any of that. God speaks not about the problems at all. He just gives a full discourse into his creation and how he did it all. Even the stars. Even the deer giving birth when no one was watching, even fire-breathing dragons and dinosaurs. I can't wait to get to these chapters with you guys. <laughs> God starts with creation, 
much like our Bibles do. He starts with creation because it's a reminder that our problems are little and his hands are big. After God speaks, Job changes. One author put it into three R's. Job refocuses, he recalibrates, and he repents. And notice, it doesn't say he was healed. It doesn't say he healed and then he refocused and recalibrated and then all that. He just says that he had to do all that. And then eventually the good news does come. So the principles is God may have purposes beyond our perfect plan. Purposes for our adversities beyond our perfect plans. And secondly, we don't have to understand his world to trust his hand. My friend Diana was 28 years old when she was diagnosed with liver cancer. She had two small kids. They were about five and six years old, two little boys. And uh, she had never taken a drink in her life. She was a devout Christian woman, very much in shape. And uh, But it battled and battled and battled and eventually took her. But I remember going to visit her in her final days. She lived out in Colorado, and I got there, and one leg was swollen completely out of proportion, so she couldn't really move around. It just looked like everything had gone into that leg. And she said, how do you like my elephant leg? Her eyes drooped. Her liver numbers were not even on the scale anymore. They were like 280,000 or something, which is not even measurable. Her Her hair was totally must from days and days in bed. And this once prim woman, she was so beautiful that I had never seen without makeup. She leaned sideways to aim for comfort while her sweats fell off her body because the cancer was winning the battle for the calories at that moment. And her weight was way, way down. She played praise music in the background as her five and seven-year-olds ran around us and and her mother cooked. And we prayed, but at the end of the prayer, she said to me, Terry, I just really don't understand, but I trust. And it has stuck with me so much. We're not asked to understand, but we are asked to trust. A few weeks later, she indeed indeed did pass away. And to the arms of her loving Savior, her five-year-old came running up to me at the funeral and said, Mrs. Brady, how will I know what mom's new body looks like? And I realized he thought when I told him that she was going to get a new body, that she was going to come into his house with it. <laughs> poor guy. But I didn't say poor guy. I said, when we get to heaven and she's there, you'll know exactly what she looks like. <laughs> so where are we lacking that trust? Because things aren't going according to our plan. Where are we focused on the horizontal so much that we lose sight of the vertical of him? Nothing can give us an eternal perspective like suffering. Is the, It's there that we can say, like Amy Carmichael said, nothing is important except that which is eternal. Nothing but eternity matters. Where are we questioning God, not just asking questions of God? You know, John Piper says it's wrong to question God, but it's not wrong to ask questions of God. Warren Wearsby says, doubting and unbelief are different. Doubting is struggling to believe, but unbelief is stubborn disregard and turning from God. How could we be focusing on God's creation and how could it remind us to focus on him? You know, we have a a saying, it's called the patience of Job. Have you ever put your name in that sentence? And I wonder what it would be like the frenzy of Terry. (laughs) 
the negative of Nellie, the frustration of Fern? What would you put before your name? You know, Job got named with the patience of Job because he stayed strong with the Lord till the end. And that's what I want to talk about finally as the theme. I would say a theme of Jesus, but I'm not going to pretend like Jesus is in Job. It's very clear that prophets of the time did not, were not talking about a Messiah coming yet. We would never take something in the Old Testament and take the New Testament and make it into the Old Testament because we can't make the Bible say something that it didn't intend to say to the original audience. That would be making it, that would be modernizing it. We're not going to do that. But I will tell you that I related to Job who wanted a mediator in chapter 9, verse 33. He wanted to be washed with snow in 930. He wanted someone who brings light into darkness in 1222. He wanted someone to stand before the judge for him in 14.3. He wanted someone who makes clean out of the unclean in 14.4. He wanted someone who makes man rise in 14.12. He wanted an advocate on high in 16.19. He wanted a guarantor in 17.3. And he wanted a redeemer in 1925. I hope you're like me. When you get to those words in this chapter, these chapters, I hope that you find yourself wanting to scream at Job. Job, he's coming. He's coming. There is a redeemer. He's here. He's going to be there. You'll meet him one day. That's what I wanted to do. Because I got to tell you, between you and me, there is a mediator. He has already come. His name is Jesus. He's the one who took the punishment that we deserve so we can live in eternity that we do not deserve. Do you know him? In 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us from righteousness. People who say that only only the unrighteous are suffering are people who don't know Jesus. Jesus was the most righteous there was and dealt with the most suffering there was. How can we say that suffering only goes to the unrighteous? Jesus suffered a lot for me. And for you and for anyone who believes in him as their Lord and Savior. That means that if we do those R's that Job did, if we refocus on Christ, if we recalibrate to realize that it's not us, it is all him. If we repent and ask him to forgive, then we can be restored in heaven in eternity forever. So the story ends with our final spoiler alert. Job does get restored. He gets everything back double. He gets 10 more children. He gets double the land that he had before, double the property, double the animals, double the servants, everything doubled. Doesn't that make you feel better? Like you can make it to the end. But really, I kind of think, but did he get it back? I mean, he lost those kids. That's not the same kids that he got back. But I'll say that in heaven, we will get it back. Even the ones we lost on earth, Oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And I think that's where it's meant to take us. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for your word. And may we learn from it exactly what you intend for us to learn. Help our hearts, Lord, that we would turn to you, that we would repent from evil ways and that we would submit fully to Christ as our Lord. Lord, help us not to pick up the blame and not to pick up the guilt because you've already taken it by giving us your son, Jesus, on the cross. May we depend fully on him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.